Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary, and welcome in, everybody, to a premiere week of shows. It is true, you just heard Gary say, from the greatest city in the world. Well, we are now located in one of the world's greatest cities, Washington, D.C., and I thought it appropriate to start this week with a week of shows, considering I've been away for about six weeks, that are a little more political in nature. Some will be, some won't be. Uh, This is going to be a really, really fun fun week. I want to add a little bit of a disclaimer. I have my beliefs. I choose to share those beliefs in outlets that I feel are appropriate. I don't feel that this podcast is really an appropriate outlet to share any one specific belief about who I may may or may not be voting for when we all go to the voting booth tomorrow. However, that does not mean that I would shy away from having politicians of any stripe on this program to come and share their story, which is why I'm excited to have former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich kick off this week. We all know his story because as soon as he was indicted for trying to sell Senator Barack Obama's Senate seat after he became the president, we know that he did The Apprentice. And we also know he was in the media a lot trying to share his side of the story. And now, of course, President Trump, who was the host of The Apprentice when Governor Blagojevich was on the show, has commuted his sentence. He has not pardoned Rod Blagojevich. He had commuted the sentence and they are right now working to see if he can get exonerated by legal means or maybe there might be another pardon. We don't know, but I have a feeling that whether Trump wins another term or whether this is his only term, we will have some news on that front before Donald Trump leaves office. Now, Governor Blagojevich's story was chronicled by the Netflix series Trial by Media, and it actually talked about how he didn't really get a fair shake. He was not allowed to tell his side of the story, and the punishment was exorbitant for the kind of white-collar crime that he was convicted of. So even though I just said I'm not going to go heavy and share my huge political opinions, I certainly believe that Governor Blagojevich was railroaded and that the truth will be revealed. My personal my personal feelings, and Governor knows this, is that his career in politics kind of handicapped him. Politicking, horse trading, that's really all he knew how to do. And so he got himself jammed up by saying some things on tape. But then there were other things on tape, and you'll hear him talk about this in our hour-long interview, there were some other tapes that put what he had said, that, that juicy thing that the prosecution latched onto about what can I get for this, there were some other tapes that put that into context. And Trial by Media actually delves into that, and, and um, it was not allowed at trial. The governor talks a little bit about that, those tapes that would have balanced out and given some context. So I think at the end of this, you might agree that the governor was, it was a political hit job and was not given a fair trial. Of course, you know, we're hearing his side of the story. I haven't really investigated the other side of the story. But again, trial by media gives him a very, very fair shake. And he just couldn't have been more nice and congenial and grateful uh, to be free, but nice and easygoing and fun to talk to. And it was a real pleasure to share his side of the story. So here now, our interview with Governor Rod Blagojevich. Governor Rod Blagojevich, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm terrific, uh, Matt. Thanks so much. And uh, how are you? I'm great. Well, thank you very much for being here. How's uh, how's it been in Chicago since your release? You get released and then we're all under house arrest ourselves with this quarantine. How have you been handling the pandemic? Well, it's been, uh, for me, compared probably to most people, since I'm a seasoned veteran when it comes to sheltering in place. Yeah. <laughs> After all, I did it for eight years in prison for things, by the way, that aren't crimes, for routine politics, things yeah. that are necessary in government and in politics. They criminalized legal stuff and did what they did. But uh, listen, I feel so blessed and fortunate. President Trump reached in and did something he didn't have to do. I was a Democratic governor. He was a Republican president. Uh, ending the wrong that was done to me and to my family uh, was – certainly the right thing to do. But again, President Trump, uh, is, you know, doesn't get any 
political gain from it and probably got a lot of flack for it. Right. Uh, so I, I want to point out to your listeners that my family and I, my daughters, my two daughters, my wife and I will forever be grateful to President Trump for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the point I would make uh, to you, Matt, to answer your question, how, how has things been for me because of the pandemic, the sheltering in place? When you come out of where I've been, that deep, dark valley, yeah. that wretched place and those wretched circumstances – any place is better than that. And uh, the contrast between sheltering in place in prison for eight years away from the people you love and sheltering in place at home with the people you love is night and day. So for me, it's been a it's been joyful and a blessing. And I've noticed that the simplest things are just I appreciate them so much more. And places right here where I live, even not such pretty places in Chicago look beautiful to me now yeah. because I'm home and uh, it, everything's better. That's great. You talk about Trump, Republican president, you, a Democratic governor. I think it's just that wrong is wrong. And knowing what I know now, a little behind the scenes about what actually happened and evidence that was suppressed. And even the Netflix documentary, Trial by Media, was very, very fair to you and very, very fair to your family. Do you think, let me ask you this, do you think you will be exonerated on terms of the, on terms of the legal merit before President Trump has a chance to possibly pardon you, full stop. Well, man, I don't, I, I, I don't want to. I can't speculate on what President Trump may or may not do. Sure. I'm, as I said, I'm so grateful to him for what he's done already, uh, and that's more than uh, you know. That's certainly better than uh, I could have hoped for, considering the fact that they were burying me for 14 years, and that's what they, the mm-hmm. sentence that they gave me. I never took a penny. This was, again, all political conversations. But I would say this. I'm a firm believer of this. The scriptures teach this. The history books prove this. Mm-hmm. And Dr. King eloquently said, uh, eloquently said it. He said, truth crushed to earth will one day rise again because no lie can live forever. These corrupt prosecutors who did this to me and to my family are lying. They're liars. They are corrupt. They are dirty. They are the criminals. And some of the very same people who did it to me, who hijacked a governor, who did to a Democratic governor at the AAA level, what they attempted to do with the major league level to a Republican president, they're involved in both cases. And they use the same playbook. And they felt like they can get away with it when they did it to me as a governor. They took their their act and tried to actually apply it at the higher level in the major leagues. And they were unsuccessful. They got caught. And God willing, President Trump gets a second term. I think they'll be – I think – I think justice will be served. And in terms of my circumstances, I believe one day the truth will fully come out. I truly believe that my persecutors, these corrupt prosecutors, I truly believe will be brought to account. I have no specific evidence or reason to say that other than my deep abiding faith yeah. and uh, in both God in, in what is right and and what in, what the history books teach us. So, you know, um, all good things come to those who he who wait uh, for those who, for, who are willing to wait. Uh, and so. Um, I'm hopeful and uh, and very, again, as I said, blessed because I'm back. And uh, again, to borrow from Scripture in chapter 50 of Genesis, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. I think I'll be able to do a lot of good out there uh, mm-hmm. against people like that, those corrupt prosecutors and people like that who do that to people. Criminal justice reform, which President Trump has done so much uh, for when it comes to the First Step Act and some of the other things he's done, other commutations, not, not only mine. Sure. Mr. Tanner, who we commuted yesterday, uh, Alice Marie Johnson, yep. uh, 20 years. She, she served in prison, first time nonviolent offender, a grandmother. She was given a life sentence, a black woman. President Trump saved her. So I think that uh, I feel that there's a purpose behind what they did to me, that evil and that wickedness. And it's up to me to be able to discern God's wishes and to, uh, you know, do those things that I think are what is part of, you know, his plan for me, and that's that's a, you know that's certainly why uh, I try to read the Bible as often as I can because it, it helps me have a better understanding to what I believe is the will of God. Right. But you know I don't want to get too religious because I'm not claiming to be some choir boy. But I, I will say that Matt, you know when you you're, you're you're sent away like that and you're all by yourself, one thing you can do in prison is you can draw closer to God if you want to. And I was able with the time I had to. To read the Bible in a way I never did before in my life. I always believed in prayer. I was raised in a, the Serbian Orthodox Church. I was an altar boy, um, you know, and I've always had faith in God. But I never really fully had a better, had, had as much of an understanding of His wishes and 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 
how we should live our life until I actually was in prison. And every day I could read his words slowly and carefully and reread it and think about it and not feel rushed because I was busy running for governor. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Let me ask you this. And I don't know how closely you followed other governors and, and this and that in prison or, or now that you're out. But it, it there seems to be this endemic thing where governors end up in hot water for things that eventually get overturned, eventually get commuted. Supreme Court, higher courts overturn it. Uh, Eric Greitens, whom you know I work with, everybody now knows I worked with, that I work with for his show, his situation. The prosecutor's now under suspicion. The main witness in his indictment. Uh, has actually gone, uh, is charged, I think, for things directly related to the investigation into Governor Greitens. Uh, Bob McDonnell, whom I know we all know, ha- went through a situation. He very nearly went to prison, but then the, the higher court said, nah, this is bogus. What What is it with these playing these games with governors of states to where you want to call call out their credibility and investigate them and really hinder them from doing their jobs? It's you know the saying about the NFL it's a copycat league. Yeah. Right? That, right? If you look at professional sports, you know, for example, you know the Kansas City Chiefs are on top of the world. They've got the great the best quarterback in football, Patrick Mahomes. Mm-hmm. You know, now everybody's looking to kind of build their team around a quarterback like that and get somebody like that and and have their team play the way the Chiefs play. Uh that's a very common thing in football and all professional sports. It's also true in in um in the entertainment field, I had a very little experience with that after uh, calamity struck, and I did a little, some television stuff. I was actually right. on Celebrity Apprentice, yes, and I and I, I saw how even that you know is copycat. And if some program and an idea of a program works, um, then others try to do a similar thing. For example, a program that my wife was on, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which is an mm-hmm. NBC show, yeah. was a copycat of something they do in London and in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. So it's, the prosecutors are no different, these federal prosecutors. And they see that if one prosecutor like uh, is successful in bringing down a governor and then he or she you know, gets hired as a big partner in a big law firm making millions of dollars, it's a form of career advancement for them. And so others say, well, if he can do it, so can I. And so the governor uh, of, uh, you know, New Jersey is taken down. Mm-hmm. So the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney in Illinois says, I'm going to do that, too. And then they up, they up their game and they they get more and more bold because they get away with things and they don't just stretch the law. They flat out mm-hmm. use fake law, things that aren't law, which they did with me to criminalize legal conversations. I didn't. The whole thing was for political conversations initiated by President Obama. Yeah. So I think it's a com- I think it's because they they're they're not a lot of these pro- these U.S. attorneys, these prosecutors are fundamentally corrupt. They're all about their careers and they're all about getting big places and big law firms, making millions of dollars as partners. And uh, they can do that by being big game hunters and bringing down powerful political figures. And they've been successful with certain governors like me. They try to do it to a president. They weren't successful. You have that. And then what you have, too, Matt, is you have the news media, which is complicit as well, because they can't they can't avoid a super sensational story, notwithstanding the fact that it's not truthful. Yeah, but no longer. Yes. The argument could be made that you played into that super sensationalism in your case. I mean, you did media appearance after media appearance after media appearance. And you did Celebrity Apprentice, and I understand it through watching Trial by Media on Netflix that that was part of your strategy to get your side out there because it was just going to be the side of the government if you weren't out there telling it. So you kind of would. Is it fair to say that you tried to use that sensationalism to your advantage? That's a good question, man. It's a fair question, but I would say not exactly. But as you as you ask it, I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. When they did that to me, they brought all that Armageddon down on me. They Don't forget, they came to a governor's house at 6 o'clock in the morning yeah. with SWAT teams. Now, I was Roger – You know, I, what they did to me was was a prelude to what they would do years later to Roger Stone. Mm-hmm. Um, he, I mean, Roger Stone, with, when they surrounded his house, the only difference was they didn't bring CNN with them like they did with Roger Stone. But years before, they had done that to me, to a sitting governor in the fifth largest state in America. So they brought this shock and awe. And then they go out and, and they tell this big they, – they'd hold this big press conference while I'm in custody, and they tell the big lie. And there is no doubt in my mind these people purposely did that. You know, Hitler writes about this in Mein Kampf. You tell the big lie, 
and uh, and that's how you establish, you know, if you tell it long enough, the people believe it. And Winston mm-hmm. Churchill, one of the greatest men in history, Hitler's nemesis, ultimately defeated Hitler. Winston Churchill said, you know, a, ha- a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth gets a chance to put its pants on. So they went out and did that to me and told that big lie. And they did all that drama, all designed, I'm, I'm fully convinced, to put me in a position where I would have no chance and I'd have to just say what they wanted me to say and give in. And then and then I would probably get a much – I would have significantly gotten a significantly lighter sentence. I'd have gone away. They would have never had to show their cards mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and try to improve their case. Well, they – it's a long, long story on what they did. The bottom line sure. here, Matt, was the reason I did the media stuff was because what do you do when you're an innocent man and they've shouted – off the highest rooftops worldwide that I'm some sleazeball trying to sell President Obama's Senate seat. And the game was rigged. The political establishment understandably quickly runs from you because they're thinking, how could these prosecutors do something like that to a governor when it has to be true? And, uh, and then the media is all over it, and you're way, behind, you're, you're way deep down buried. You have little or no chance to fight back. I saw mm-hmm. early on that I wasn't going to get a fair trial. The judge was not allowing us to release the tapes to the public. They right. put a seal order on the tapes and didn't allow me to, to have the full conversations and the context heard. So I had no choice but to fight back that way. That's why I did it. Did I think that it might sway the jury? You know, my, Some of my lawyers talk about that after the fact and say that. Um, I didn't frankly see it that way. I just felt like, what would Abraham Lincoln do if he got accused of something like that? What would Teddy Roosevelt do? What would Churchill do? They'd fight back. And so I was notorious in that it, back then in the sense that the media was interested in what I had to say. They were all inviting me to do their programs, and I took them up on it. You know, the lawyers would say you shouldn't do that sort of thing, but when you're innocent – and you were, you know, here's another point I'd like to make to your listeners, Matt. Sure. I wasn't some businessman, you know, who might make a business decision and maybe cut his losses and, uh, you know, plead to something that wasn't against the law. But when I look at all the attorney's fees and everything else and, and all the years that I'm facing versus cutting my losses and doing a little time away and, not, and saving all that money from a business point of view, maybe you do it. But I was the governor of Illinois. I was hired by the people to be on their side. I swore on the Holy Bible mm-hmm. to uh, uphold the Constitution and the rule of law. I would have sold the people out if I gave into that because they're not crimes. I used to often think, geez, I wish these were crimes so I could do it, mm-hmm. so I could end this misery and cut a, cut a deal. But they weren't, and they're not. And that's why I'm convinced in the long run those people are going to have to answer for what they did because they stole a governor from 13 million people in the state of Illinois who was twice elected. Right. Which gets me to Trial by Media on Netflix, your episode, absolutely fantastic. And I think they were very fair to you, and I think that this case, you know, 12 years on, is finally seeing the proper light of day for what it is, for the sham that it is. And were you aware that Netflix was interested in your story while you were behind bars? And were you suspicious of them? Because they've been known to to pull fast ones. But in this case, it really worked out well. Well, maybe, Matt, you and I can make a little news. You can make some news on your podcast. I'm going to give you some news. Not that anybody will pick up on it, but I think you might find this interesting. The answer is, yes, I was aware that Netflix was was doing – Doing a an ep, you know, doing a um, a series or, uh, on trial by media, and that mm-hmm. that I was going to have there was going to be a portion on my case. Uh, they had talked to Patty, my wife, and of course she told me when I would call her every night from prison, we we get 300 minutes a month, so I would carefully apportion my 30 days with 10 minutes a night for my two daughters and my wife religiously, and and uh, and I, I never took calls from anybody else, or I never called anybody else, but. Of course, uh, I knew that she told me about it, and uh, I was, you know, naturally, uh, in view of all that's happened and certain promises that were made to us from other media outlets that they would give us a fair shot and tell our story, side of the story, and then when we'd give them access, they always fell short, right? Yeah. Um, so I was, you know, naturally, uh, you know, filled with some uh, skepticism about, you know, what direction they might go in. But, you know, look, when you're in that position where I was and – and you're buried like you were, you know, they had vacated my sentence, the appellate court, when the sale of the Senate seat charges were overturned. 
And uh, the expectation was that I was going to come home, but the judge then put me back at 14 years. I believe, again, they were burying me on purpose to keep the truth suppressed. But so when Netflix was interested, yes, I was had some skepticism, but I was also hopeful because the indications were that they were interested in what they thought was uh, a bit a railroad, uh, a, you know, pros- corrupt, you know, corrupt prosecutors who had railroaded me. Now it didn't shake out exactly as we were hopeful. We were led to believe it might. They actually took the media angle more than they did the substance of the case. So in that sense, mm-hmm. it was still a little bit disappointing from our point of view. My wife and I, you know, but um, here's the interesting tidbit that I thought you might find interesting newsworthy from a newsworthy point of view. See, Netflix wanted to come and interview me. And they, they'd been trying to do that for, oh, maybe a year and a half. This mm-hmm. whole thing was a work in progress for a couple of years. Right. And uh, they the, the prison won't allow that unless uh, you have – it's a legitimate bona fide media organization. Uh, and I have the right to turn it down. But they have to offer it to you, but not if it's Netflix and it's just entertainment. So what Netflix did to get around it was they went out and got themselves a legitimate – bona fide person from the media to come and interview me. And then they put their media request in there with this person's name and his media affiliation. Now, Matt, do you want to ask me who that was? Who was it? It was Jeffrey Tubin from CNN. Knowing what I know now and view what's happened, I'm glad I turned them down <laughs> because who knows what would have happened on the other side of that table. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that is funny. That is that is so absolutely you just, rich. You just broke a story, man. Yes. Rod Blagojevich almost interviewed by serial masturbator. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. That's great. That's funny. That's funny, Governor. That, you know, and let's talk about that sentence for just for just a second, because one of the things that trial by media points out is how even if you had done what you were accused of doing, let's say for a minute that there was a crime there, you had done it, you were tried, you were convicted, even under normal circumstances of what the crimes were you were charged with. That's an egregious sentence by any measure. Did you ever figure out what the motivations for 14 years were? Well, of course, it's because I, it's because it's precisely because I am innocent. Mm-hmm. It's precisely because they did railroad me. It's precisely because they are the criminals who used a fake standard to convict me at a second trial. You know, your listeners yeah. should be reminded they didn't convict me the first time on the so-called corruption charges. That was a hung jury. And by the way, for your listeners, it's awfully hard for a politician, a governor, whomever, yeah. who's a, you know, a member of a political party. I was a Democrat to get a completely unanimous verdict of not guilty. It's rare. You, you, the best you can hope for is a hung jury. There are going to be some people from the other party, you know, voters from the other party who don't like you just because you're on the other side. And, uh, you know, there were certainly some Republicans. There were Republicans on the jury. There were Democrats, too, of course. Mm-hmm. But so it's awfully hard to get a unanimous verdict. You know, of a not guilty, but the first trial was hung. So you would think that double jeopardy might kick in, but it doesn't kick in when it's a when it's a mistrial, which is what that's technically called. So they can try you in, you know, forever. And had they not convicted me the second time around, they could keep doing it and they keep doing it until they bury you and destroy you financially, which they already did. Anyway, having said that, no, I received that sentence. Because it, precisely for those reasons I just told you, they were burying me and they were punishing me because I fought back and uh, they were sending a message to others. If you want to exercise your right to uh, to go to trial, we're going to punish you. We're going to put a hurt on you. If you're going to exercise your right of free speech to express your innocence, we're going to punish you and put a hurting on you. If right. you're going to you know, think that you have the temerity to presume uh, that you might be, you know, the public should expect to presume that you're innocent. We're going to punish you for that. You know, I should point this out. When that fake sale of the Senate seat was reversed by the appellate court, there was no way they could uphold that because any kind that, that if they upheld that standard, government would shut down everywhere yeah. because in Congress and in all the state legislatures and all the city councils all over America, the way politics operates and government operates is, you know, I vote for your bridge. 
you know, you vote for my bill, right? Mm-hmm. This is how it works. So they could not possibly uphold that standard when we talked about political log rolling, because that's what the Supreme, the appellate court said. But they protected the prosecutors. I know they did it for a, a, to do it because like the, the scandal would be so much greater if they were, if I'm right and I am, and they did what they did, and that is they hijacked and stole a duly elected governor from the people. That's the crimes they're guilty of. So the appellate court protected them, and they upheld a fake standard when they moved the line. Because in order to convict – and it's because these – the convictions that were remaining, man, were only fundraising requests. None of them came to fruition. They were attempts at fundraising. In other words, they converted a, a, a lawful ask for a fundraiser and turned it into bribery and extortion charges. And I was never the one who even made the ask. They were representatives of mine, my brother. Made the sure. ask. He never had an express quid pro quo, which is what the standard is. Mm-hmm. The McCormick case, 1991. There never was that. Yet prosecutors never alleged that. What they did was they moved the line and they used third parties to say, well, my understanding, in other words, they had an understanding of what was in my mind. Mm-hmm. My understanding was that if uh, we didn't agree to do the fundraiser, uh, the, the governor might not do X, Y, and Z. Well, under that standard, Every senator, every governor, every mayor, every president who seeks to, to raise campaign contributions when he or she doesn't even make the request themselves but does it through a third party, every one of them would have been sent to prison like me. And mm-hmm. by the way, they put me in prison for 14 years. Anytime you're in prison from in federal prison for more than 10 years, that means you're required to go to the higher security prison. So in their effort to bury me, they put me in a place with 900 inmates filled with drug dealers and gangbangers, filled with drug kingpins, with murderers, mm. with con men, with sex offenders, with bank robbers. Only 2 percent in that place I was in were white collar criminals. Now, having said that, frankly, I feel I'm better off for having been in that place because I learned a lot more about the corrupt and racist criminal justice system that we have in the United States. Which is why I hope you are pardoned, or I don't know what what your situation is to be able to hold office again, but I really do hope that your name is completely cleared so that you can serve in some official capacity, knowing what you know. One of the one of the sort of I don't even want to call it a negative, but one of the things that Trial by Media points out, that your story points out as kind of a cautionary tale, is that you've been in government or some form of governing most of your life. Do you think that being a politician and not having that business acumen like you talked about, do you think that hurt you in all of this and has hurt you since release? Or or do you think that having been a leader it is more strong? So, Matt, is your question, do I feel because I was a politician and now that I'm an ex-offender and I've been released from prison, that I'm at a disadvantage compared to others who are similarly situated but who weren't politicians? Yes, Yes. Um, no, I don't feel that way. I feel uh, I feel like I have certain advantages they don't have hmm. because for whatever, for, for better or for worse, I have a certain notoriety. And as a result of that, I, I've been able to do, do certain things to earn income. For example, I do these things called Cameo yep. where I do shout outs to people and they pay me. And that's been shockingly and surprisingly yeah, good. And it's been actually heart, it's been nice to do. I It's very heartwarming when a you know, a daughter asks uh, the former governor of Illinois to send a message to her mother who uh, I just received a request the other day. It was touching her. Her elderly mother's cat, Squeaky, just passed away. And she'd been with the, her mom for, you know, a long, long time, something like 12 or 14 years. And, and the, the poor woman's heartbroken because her beloved little cat, Squeaky, died. And she said, Governor, you've been through, you know, your own kind of adversity and You've been able to overcome. Could you give my mom a pep talk and encourage her that her children want her to get another pet so she's not alone? And so I I spent time and I really enjoyed doing it. It was very heartwarming for me to send this woman. God bless her. Uh, I think she's from Pennsylvania, Matt, your home state, Uh, a a, a cameo and to encourage her to to, uh, you know, replace to get that. You can't replace Squeaky, but to get another pet, you know, another pet to keep her company to be a companion with her. And I said, I, you know, I, I have to know that have to believe that your beloved squeaky would want that for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, and so I, I received a response back from this woman and she was so grateful for the message and she's determined now to go out and get herself another cat or, or maybe a, another ca- a pet, maybe a dog. I'm not quite sure. I assume it's going to sure. be a cat, but, uh, 
so I've been able to do that and I've, I've earned a good income doing this and I, I did some today and, and they're nice and it's really pleasurable, but that's only because I'm, I have that notoriety. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, that would not be the case. And I've, I've done, I have my podcast uh, here, the lightning rod podcast that yes. we do. And, uh, that I think again is a product of the notoriety. Uh, so I've been the beneficiary of that as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some other consulting, uh, opportunities have come to me. And I think that's a combination of I was once an attorney and uh, and I did represent the rights of the accused among the other kinds of law that I practiced. And because I was a lawmaker, congressman for six years, state lawmaker for four and the executive branch governor for six years. And, uh, you know, I have a certain kind of know how Mm -hmm. because of that experience that other people don't have. So, no, Matt, I feel uh, just the opposite is true. I'm, I'm in a more lucky place than some of my you know, my uh, fellow ex-offenders who, who are coming out and don't have those advantages. And I don't even like the term ex-offender for you, because as more and more of your story comes out, it really seems as though offender doesn't even, you know, ex-victim of this criminal justice system where your story is not is was not justly justly told and justly prosecuted because the outcome would have been different. Let me ask that fame piece, that notoriety that not only allows you to do the consulting work, because certainly your government credentials would allow for that, your experience would allow for that, great private sector work, but the idea that that you are so a part of pop culture that when somebody's cat dies, they want to hear from Governor Blagojevich. Is that is that a weird thing to you? I mean, not weird in a bad sense, but I mean, did you ever imagine we would be here in terms of the celebrity of our politicians? No, of course not. No, I never did. Mm-hmm. Look, I never imagined I would ever do a show like Celebrity Apprentice. Yeah. You know, I never watched it. Now, I had met Donald Trump uh, on two occasions before that. Uh, he had actually contributed to me through uh, George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, the first time I ran oh, for wow. governor. And, uh, and it was really nice. He was very friendly and very impressive. You can see it right when he walked in the room. Mm-hmm. He was with Regis, Tube, uh, Regis Philbin. The two of them came in together. George Steinbrenner, great guy, yeah. uh, introduced me to Donald Trump. And then all the years went by, Matt, and, uh, and then that happened to me. Uh, and then I fought back. And I, but here, here, So, no, I never could have possibly imagined that. I never watched any kind of reality TV when I was governor or even before. And then suddenly I'm making a living, well, a little bit of a living on his show. My wife did. This other show, Celebrity Apprentice, or uh, I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, which they invited me to do, but the judge wouldn't let me leave the country to do it. So uh, I know Variety at that time was what it was. They wanted Patty for ratings, evidently. So that's all shocking to me, right? Mm-hmm. I should tell you, your listeners might get a kick out of this, but you know, my like my brand was so damaged, right? My image was so bad with what they were, what these prosecutors said in the very beginning that. You know, they, they, the legislature predictably, the moment I got arrested, I knew I was a dead man, and I pretty much calculated how much time I had before I was going to get thrown out of office, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so, uh, and I had procedurally, I had about six weeks, so I had to take care of business. I appointed a United States senator and did a bunch of stuff. And anyway, but now I'm out of work. And then, um, my wife, uh, because of me, uh, a contract she had with an organization she was working for in an executive position. They terminated her and breached the contract, but it was an organization that helped the homeless. We didn't feel like it was right to sue to enforce her contract. So the two of us find ourselves unemployed and we have a mortgage here. We're, you know, I'm not like the current governor of Pritzker who was, you know, born with a silver ladle in his mouth and inherited billions of dollars from the Hyatt hotel fortune. Yeah. You know, my dad was a factory worker, an immigrant factory worker. My mom, was a working mom and you know so patty and i are home and we have a mortgage and we have two young children and so you know what are you going to do with it about income we got lucky but here's what happened too, mark uh matt in the very beginning because of what they were saying about me the offers that were coming to me i never imagined this they were just coming you know they were offers i I rejected i I, there was an offer to be ready for this six figures to uh be a greeter on an hbo television program about a whorehouse in Henderson, Nevada, called the Bunny Ranch. You ever hear of that show? <laughs> you don't have to admit it. But uh, so they it's, they have this bordello in Henderson, outside of Las Vegas, and uh, they wanted me to be a greeter, 
Well, I politely declined. I didn't feel <laughs> like that was, you know, something I wanted to do. Then I was invited, Matt, to go out and interview for a possible game show. This was between being governor and my first trial. Yeah. And again, it was a way to earn income. By the way, when you get this, when they do this to you in such a way, your old friends in politics run from you because they're afraid. Yeah. You, you can't fault them. They're afraid. They don't want what you got. They don't want to catch it. And nobody wants to hire you to do anything because they don't want those people in their lives, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm unemployable, um, but except for entertainment. And and I never imagined that I would do some of the things that I did. I got paid $10,000 to sing an Elvis song <laughs> in my faux Elvis uh, impersonation, right? And, you know, but I turned down a lot of stuff. $10,000 to shave my head in public. I, I turned that down. And I turned down that HBO program, The Bunny Ranch. Uh, and I also was invited to do, to get to, to interview for a game show, a possible game show. And listen to this. So they, they were telling me about the concept and it was about, you know, I would be the, the host mm-hmm. and it would, it's a show where uh, it's like candid camera where you've got a camera with you and you, you break into some guy who's cheating on his wife and you got the wife with you and yeah. you catch the guy in front, you know, you know, in the midst of the, infidelity and you turn the lights on there he is and she's with you the wife and you pat you, you stick a microphone in your in his face and you say hey charlie so what do you think now she caught you red-handed right and uh you know i'm listening to their pitch and i'm saying listen with all the you know how do i say this and i, I don't feel comfortable doing that that i just don't want to do a role like that mm-hmm. so i said but I, I, i'll tell you what i had in mind I, you know do you have a show where you got a pretty girl who spins a wheel and i ask trivia questions and uh, they told me, well, we don't see you in that role, but we do think you'd be perfect for this other one. Well, I didn't take it. And I guess there's a show called Cheaters. Yes. So evidently, you know, that was the show, I think. But I turned it down. So uh, the long and the short of it is I had no clue, no possible remote idea or thought that I would end up doing any kind of television like I did. Um but when president when uh, president trump but donald trump then then donald trump a celebrity apprentice made the offer that's a respectable show yeah. and i didn't hesitate to do that and and i needless to say man in view of what's happened i sure am glad i agreed to do that show because president trump's the only president in american history to have fired and freed the same guy even abraham <laughs> lincoln never did that yeah and there's a story with an elevator and president trump yes when i had you on greg's uh, podcast you told this story Please tell this here because this is such a such a, a great story about treating people with respect no matter your position in life. Because there are people, and I'll tee this up for you, and I believe what you're about to say is correct, uh, that you wouldn't be free if it weren't for this story. Because there are a lot of people who say that the way Obama dug into Trump uh, at the White House Correspondents' Dinner one year were what are what made him dig up his presidential ambitions again. So you're very, I think your assessment of this story I want you to tell is is pretty accurate. Please go ahead. Well, it's December 2003. I'm, uh, I'm a brand new governor. Mm-hmm. Uh, first Democratic governor elected in Illinois, in Illinois in 26 years. I think I was, I was 45 years old then, so I was a kind of relatively young governor. But I, but I was kind of hot in, in Democratic politics. And uh, and and I I was raising a lot of money. They, I, mean, I didn't know who these people were, but I was getting invited to go to Beverly Hills and Hollywood, and to New York City, where that's where the big Democratic donors traditionally have been. Now Silicon Valley apparently is part of this too, but back then it wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. It was pretty much Hollywood and, and New York, New York. So we were raising a lot of money in those places, because at that time I was you know viewed as a you know rising star actually. It's laughable now, but I was—they were talking about me as a potential, potential, potential presidential candidate, a new face from the Midwest. They were right about that, but he would come two years later because Obama then ran for the Senate and then gave that great speech in Boston at the convention and catapulted himself to that place. And he would go on to the White House, and I'd end up in the shit house, right? <laughs> yeah. But who could have thought that then? But in any event, in December two thousand three, when I was uh, in that place, uh, I had a, my. Uh, this prominent lawyer in New York City who raises a lot of money for Chuck Schumer um, wanted to meet me and hosted me at his home in Oyster Bay, beautiful home, not far from Teddy Roosevelt's home in Sagamore Hill. In fact, I ran there in a snowstorm and ran back because I felt like Teddy Roosevelt would do something like that. Oh, wow. um, but this guy hosted me for the weekend and uh, and introduced me to a whole bunch of his 
his friends and associates and on a Saturday night and we had dinner at a restaurant in Manhattan to meet these people. And afterwards we went to Madison Square Garden because he had owned a fighter. He was a had promoted a fighter that was, you know, mm-hmm. he had funded and supported who was fighting uh, Klitschko, who was the heavyweight champion of the world at Madison Square Garden. So this was a title fight. And so uh, he, I had, you know, I was a Golden Gloves boxer when I was a kid in high school, my senior year. So, you know, I'm not unfamiliar with boxing. I wasn't a, by any means a, you know, world-class boxer, but I know boxing and I'm a, you know, I like boxing. Sure. So, uh, and I'm delighted to go to what to Madison Square Garden to go with this guy and watch his fighter. Anyway, at the moment his fighter got in the ring, you knew he was going to, he was a dead man because he was so out of shape. Okay. He kind of, he was like a lighter version of our governor today in Illinois, Prisker. This guy, this, he wasn't going to last three rounds and he didn't. I think Klitschko ended that fight in the second round. They, they ended it. It was just a one-sided affair. In any event, we left early, you know, left sooner than I, I hosted a hope for. Um, and when you're the governor, Matt, you have the security detail with you all the time. Right. And so a couple of the guys will go ahead and they'll establish where you're going to go to get you in and out of places. They do this for security reasons. And so in this particular case, they had commandeered a freight elevator in Madison Square Garden. And uh, and what they do is they'll, they'll make room for you to, to get through the crowds and stuff. They weren't, you know... They're, they're smart about how they handle their professional. Anyway, that night, my host and I and some of the friends that were with us, you know, were leaving. The security detail that's with me is escorting me and leading me to where I'm, I got to go. You don't even know. You don't even know where you're going. They just take you. Right. That's, right. You get used to that after a while. And by then it was I was governor for about 10 months. So I was I was used to that the way it worked. And um, we get to this freight elevator <clears throat> and there's this. And there's this very recognizable man and the strikingly beautiful woman, tall and beautiful and striking, clearly an international model, world-class model with this brave and dark black hair, okay, standing next to him. And the guy, of course, was Donald Trump, yeah. okay? And the woman, again, at the time I didn't know, but years later as I'm sitting in prison and watching the presidential election – and uh, Trump running and rooting for him. I was rooting for him then because he was so good to me at Celebrity Apprentice. He was so kind to me, mm-hmm. uh, and nice to me. And I saw a side of him that I, I don't think enough people realize what he really is like because he's a fundamentally kind person. But in any event, uh, that was Trump. And I would later learn Melania, only uh, her hair would, would be lighter when she became the first lady. Uh, but back then – in 2003, in December, it was really dark. It was blood, very black. Beautiful, right? I mean, you know, and, and of course, my admiration for Trump went up even higher just because he was with such a beautiful woman. I mean, <laughs> I, it's, I can, is that wrong to say these days, man? No. But that's a, it's a guy thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anyway, my security detail kicked him out of the freight elevator and her made him stand on the side, wouldn't let him in. They yeah. were holding it for me. I walked in. I see him standing there with her. And that was the moment of truth, wasn't it? I didn't yeah. hesitate, of course. I invited a man, please come in, please come in. But imagine, Matt, had I not done that, I think I wouldn't be talking to you today. I think I'd still be sheltering in place in prison, maybe. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he values loyalty. He values gestures like that. And the But the flip side of that is you slide him once and he never forgets. So you're absolutely correct. And which brings me to kind of the last thing. I Can want... I say something, Matt? Real yeah, quick, please. I don't know about that part. I'm not so sure he. I'm not so sure. Had I not let him in, he he might just still not. Uh, he might still have done it. I'll tell you why. Here's what I want to. I want to say about him. Sure. Because I know he's he he he's a battler and he's a fighter, and I think those are, and, and th- that's what makes him, in my mind, such a an effective president and a successful president, and such a successful leader. Because if you look at history, the great leaders they fight. Yeah. And I knew when I was governor, the stuff we did for people, health care for all the kids, free public transportation for all of our seniors and the disabled, not raising taxes on people, all kinds of stuff. I had to fight for that. But what I would say about President Trump is the side of him that I saw when I was on Celebrity Apprentice, when the cameras weren't on, was a very kind man. And I'd like to give you another story on an elevator. Mm-hmm. And it was it was the last episode of Celebrity Apprentice in that season. Uh, we had filmed that that. 2010 season in October of 2009 
in New York and you have to sign a contract where you don't disclose when you get fired. Okay. Cause right. they're going to air this months later. And so, and, and, and the competition is still on cause they're still competing. So by the time I'd been fired, uh, it played out and it turned, it, it came down to the two finalists and it was a woman named Holly Robinson Pete. She's an actress, very nice person married to uh, Rodney Pete, the NFL quarterback who played for UCLA, the, Philadelphia Eagles and the Dallas Cowboys. He was a quarterback's coach, I think, mm-hmm. or an assistant coach for the Cowboys. Well, she married him, and and he I met him. So she was in the finals, and this rock and roll star named Brett Michaels from a band called Poison. Yep. I never heard of him, okay? But he was the other finalist. And he's from uh, the Pittsburgh area, working class, excellent guy, great guy. But he's got this long hair, and he's got, like, mascara around his eyes, and he's got this bandana yeah. And I never heard of the guy, right? It, that shows you how I'm not a big Elvis <laughs> fan. You think I would be a little bit more attuned with my own generation, but I, but I wasn't. But I learned that boy, that the women loved him, and he was, you know, all over Manhattan when we're doing the show. They all knew him and they loved him. I guess he had another show where he kisses women or something. In any event, they're the, in on the finals, and the rest of us were asked to come back and participate before a live audience. I want to say it was at New York University. NYU on stage, live audience. There's hundreds of people out there, maybe 500 to a thousand people in the audience. My wife and daughter were, they, they paid for my children and Patty to come with me. And we stayed at one of Trump's hotels in Manhattan. It was a nice little weekend, but I know my days are numbered. You know what I'm saying, man? Because I'm in the middle of my troubles and yeah. we're going to go to the first trial shortly. I just know they have so much power. Eventually, you know, I'll keep fighting, but I, my mind, I made a decision. I'm going down fighting because there's no comeback if you if you just give in. And I'm just going to go down fighting. Sure. But so it was a bittersweet weekend. But it was no, it was so nice having my two daughters and my wife with me. And after the show was during the show, Trump was good to me. And he was giving me a chance to be on TV. He's asking me who I should we should pick, who should the winner be, and all that. And there was a point where he asked, he. Um, I squeezed in about, you know, I, I kept, I was on message all the time and I kept sliding in every chance I could that I was innocent. And when I said that, the, there was an uproar in the audience. They all started laughing and it was, you know, it was friendly, but it was kind of, there was a derisive quality to it as well. Like, ha ha, yeah, daughter, right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so my daughters are out there in the audience and my wife's out there. My daughter's at that time, my daughter, Amy, my our older daughter, she was uh, 12 years old and our younger one. Annie uh, was five. So they were just little girls. And uh, uh, they hear that. But, uh, you know, Trump doesn't know they're in the audience. Uh, and But when the show's over, it just so happened. I'm on the elevator with my daughters and my wife when the filming was when the show was over. And we were, were on an elevator going down to leave. And it just happened coincidentally that Trump got on the elevator. Mm-hmm. And I introduced him to my wife, Patty, and I introduced him to my two daughters. When we got down to the bottom of the elevator, and I remember, no cameras, no nothing. This was just human, just people, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's tall and he's got a very strong presence. My daughters are little girls. He gets down, he bends down to their level, eye level, and then he said some real nice things about their father to them. Oh, wow. In, in other words, to just kind of make them feel better because they were in the audience. He realized, and they heard that derisive laughter at their father's expense. And I'll always remember that. And and that was, to me, a glimpse into his fundamental kindness and his fundamental goodness. And it really bothers me. And I got to tell you, I don't really know him that well, just a little bit on that show and a couple of times that I've been him before. But I feel the real – as you can imagine, I mean, he saved me as he, as he did. But even in prison, you know, when I watched what they do to him, I, it, it hurts me like a friend is getting beat up wrongfully by people, too many of them, with bad motives who are heartless – and cruel and purposely lying about someone who they th- describe in a way where he really isn't that way. Mm-hmm. And that's why Herschel Walker and people like that who know Trump the way they do are so off for him because yeah. they know his fundamental goodness and his fundamental kindness. If he likes it, he's extremely loyal. I'll say that. And, uh, you know, if you fight him, he's tough. But isn't that how you're supposed to be? Exactly. That's exactly how you're supposed to be. Which brings me to kind of the final section that I want to do with you. I haven't heard you talk too much about your ideology and how that's changed over the last few years. I know you describe yourself as a Trumpocrat, but in talking with your team, I, I kind of get the sense that there's no interest in sort of jumping fully into the GOP, doing uh, what that one gentleman did and, and 
declaring that he was changing parties. You really want to make news, you could declare on this show that you're changing parties. So the question I want to ask is, you might be supporting Trump, you might have supported him from day one. What still makes you, Governor Rod Blagojevich, in your mind and in your heart, a Trump-supporting Democrat? Well, that's a great question, Matt. Well, I'm a Trumpocrat. That's what I mm-hmm. call myself. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a lot of Trumpocrats out there. And I think a lot of my fellow Trumpocrats, um, understandably, are afraid to say it because they just don't want that. They don't want to be hassled by, you know, an intolerant, radical, uh, left-wing portion of the Democratic Party that is so radical and extreme and so anti-free speech and mm-hmm. so unforgiving that it's almost tyrannical. It's almost fascist-like, some of these crazy people that have invaded the Democratic Party. Um, I consider myself a Democrat still. I still subscribe to you know, the fundamental idea that the Democratic Party is supposed to be on the side of the you know, ordinary American, the forgotten American. You know, the silent, you know, majority. Now, periodically, historically, the Republicans have co-opted that that person, okay, that type of a of a constituent. You know, Nixon famously in the in the late sixties and early seventies, Ronald Reagan, you know, in fact I was a Reagan Democrat. I voted for Reagan as a Democrat, mm-hmm. okay, when I was not in politics, but I was just coming up, you know, young. I voted for Reagan because I you know, I thought that he he addressed a lot of the concerns that, that fundamentally are about what you know, traditional Democrats care about. Uh, and now President Trump is doing that in a way very different even than even Reagan and Nick Nixon. I think Trump is a transformational and aspirational figure historically. I think the history books are going to be kind to him in the long run, not the immediate historians, but in the long run, they look back. Because he's when I say transformational, he's changing the face of the Rep- Republican Party. If this race was Biden against Romney, I'd have pulled my nose and vote for Biden. Mm-hmm. Right. As a Democrat, I couldn't vote for Romney, big corporate Republican like that, who, you know, downsizes businesses and costs people jobs. That's why I was not a Republican. Um, but Trump's different. Trump actually is on the side of the working person. He's fundamentally on the side of the blue collar worker, factory workers like my immigrant father. Mm-hmm. And so he's transforming the Republican Party and making it a place where they are more and more, you know, voices for those for, for that constituency group. And I believe this is among the reasons why President Trump is going to win again. I've been doubling down on my prediction, even when the polls were saying he's losing by 19 points, CNN poll, and the NBC polls got Trump losing by 14 points. In my podcast, I've been doubling down, explain, arguing why he's going to win. And it's that voter and uh, that silent majority working person who – is you know wants to get ahead in, in in the United States wants to build a better life for their family. My mother and father were like this. Now it, it never happened for them where they could ever own a home, uh, but they did send their kids to college. Right? Yeah. They worked so hard and sacrificed. The Democrat Party's left my mother and father and people like them. It's left working people in Pennsylvania and Ohio, all over the Rust Belt and all over America, because the Democratic Party today is a very different party. It's a party of uh, Wall Street. They've become the the party of Wall Street, the big corporations. The modern Democratic Party is this Silicon Valley with a, you know, a with at the social level, a a strong element of socialism. Mm -hmm. And this weird convergence is not the Democratic Party that I was a member of. And I want no part of that party. Now, I'm not leaving it yet. I'm still not giving up hope that it could be the party it once was. But Trump is changing the Republican Party. And my prediction is that, God willing, he wins again, and I believe he will. Uh, that transformation will continue. And it won't be long, uh, uh, Matt, when uh, people like me and others are going to feel very comfortable being in that kind of Trumpocrat party, if you will. Yeah. Or Trump, you know, not not Republican Party, but a new kind of Republican Party that's changed the way America, American politics is. I'm going to do a podcast on this because historically we've we've seen those transformations in politics where parties develop and evolve and change and and a new party comes into place. In fact, the Republican Party came into place just because of those similar circumstances. Lincoln was part of a new transformational political party that had, had to meet the needs of the times. Trump is changing the Republican Party to do that. Yeah, I would agree. I think what you're seeing, and I'd love to talk with you about this more. Please come back and we'll talk about the changing of parties. Because what I, but just briefly, my philosophy is you're seeing a rejection. You're seeing moderates reject the identity politics that the left sort of lives and dies by. 
And I also think that on the right, you are seeing, and this could be sacrilegious to say, but you're seeing an uncoupling of conservatism from the religious right. Being here in D.C. as a gay man for the past month, I've had no pushback. And in fact, I've gotten more cross-eyed looks from those on the left for my more conservative type leanings, even though I'm very, very moderate, than I have from the conservatives for being a gay man. So I think you're seeing two sides really starting to pull away from their extremes and the parties, especially on the left, are not are not liking it. And I think Trump is a response to that. Love him or hate him. Look, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, on one of my previous podcasts, I made it a point to insert the fact that I've always been pro LGBTQ. In fact, I was that before the, the movement was called LGBTQ. Yeah. You know, I was uh, when I was a state rep, uh, best speech I ever gave as a state lawmaker was uh, in 1993 to pass uh, a, a bill that that banned discrimination against gays and lesbians in uh, matters of housing and employment. That was cutting edge at the time. Sure. And the, those who opposed it uh, correctly said that it was the, they argued it was a slippery slope. Uh, I would argue it was a step towards, you know, equality. So, look, as I talked earlier in our podcast, my own personal faith, how I interpret God's word in the Bible, my Christian faith. And it's funny you mention this because I had this conversation early this morning uh, with Mark Vargas, in fact. Yes. Uh, how, you know, I know that there are some who who are, you know, in, you know, conservative Christian uh movements who view homosexuality and, and, you know, the LGBTQ uh, priorities as being somehow antithetical to, to what the Bible teaches us. But with the exception of a couple of places, one is St. Paul and the other is uh, in the Old Testament relating to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's funny, I, I, I talked about that this morning, and I interpret that more as being not so much anti-gay as it is just a warning of uh, – you know, living a life of excess and uh, whether it's alcoholism or drugs or gambling, you know, sex, all these things, you know, those are unhealthy ways of living. But in the final analysis, what instructs my faith as a Christian is Jesus himself. And there's nowhere in the four gospels where Jesus says anything that uh, is anything but filled with love. And uh, we are all God's children and, and um, Jesus loves all of us. And, and um, it's not an issue of what your sexual orientation might be. So I'm so glad you brought that up because I I, I, I want to commend you, Matt, for for uh, for you and for your lifestyle and uh, for you being who you are, yeah. for being you, right? And I think that's that's well, thank you. And I think that's the whole thing as we wrap up here. You couldn't help but be who you are and be out there and defend yourself. And now President Trump, with the wave of his pen, has given you the opportunity to do that and to continue to share your story. And Governor Rod Blagojevich, I really thank you for being with me today to share your story. And I think more truth will come out, and I think you will be all the better for it as that journey continues. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Matt. God bless you, my friend. Governor Blagojevich, thank you so much for your time. It was a true pleasure to talk to you, and I really do wish you nothing but the best. Man, it is a pleasure to be back with you. I hate when I have to take big sabbaticals like this to get my life in order, but we're back. I always knew I would be back. Like I promised, there was not going to be a six-month gap like there was between November and April. This is We're Back, and we're in D.C., and I wanted to highlight that again doing personal interviews with politicians, not trying to get political. So this week is a big week. It is premiere week. Tomorrow it's election day and I'm staying out of that. We're just going to have a nice lighthearted conversation with Joan London. Then Wednesday, we are going to have the one and only Sean Spicer. Love him or hate him. He has a new book out. We talk about his feelings on the media. He's now a host of a TV show himself, Spicer and Company on Newsmax TV, in addition to his new book. Then on Thursday, we will have the one and only, saying the one and only again, but the truly iconic and down-to-earth Rob Paulson, just to break that up, voice actor, actor, incredible career. He was like all of the Ninja Turtles. He was Carl Weezer. Animaniacs is coming back, so we... So we will talk about that. And then Friday, to round it out, it's the interview you've been waiting for. It's the interview that went viral on Twitter, on Facebook. 
Everybody's so excited. Can't believe I got to do this. Carol Baskin this coming Friday. So we have a big week of shows, and then we will be back to our regular release schedule the following week. That is it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for more and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at talkfor2 and on Instagram at talkfor2pod. And everything is spelled T-A-L-K-F-O-R-T-W-O. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.